You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. It's good to be together. We're going through the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 26, the chapter that was just read. And here we're going to see some great truths this morning for us. And before I jump in and pray a couple things, uh, this is a day that's nationally recognized as Orphan Sunday uh, to raise awareness uh, for the need of adoptive and fostering families uh, all across the country. Uh, so we, uh, as people who uh, really strongly and passionately believe in life and the sanctity of life, uh, want to see more families step up and adopt and more families step up and foster. Uh, so just so we can just give appreciation and encourage you. If you're an adoptive family in this room or you're a foster family or have fostered before, uh, will you please stand up so we can just acknowledge you and just thank God for you and how he's used you? Well, let's, let's just encourage them. We're thankful for you very much in every service we've seen that. Fantastic. Also, the scriptures tell us to give honor to whom honor is due, and uh, we just had Veterans Day observed this past, uh, or yesterday, and I would love if you're a veteran in this room to please stand so we can thank you uh, for your service to our country. So any veterans in this room, uh, please stand. Thank you for serving your country. We do not take for granted the fact that we get to gather here freely uh, this morning. And uh, obviously that's because of God's sovereignty and God's hand, but also how he has used our veterans over generations to preserve the freedoms that we have here in the United States. So on behalf of your church, uh, to all the veterans, we thank God for you uh, and for your service. Also, just a little family moment here that's pretty serious. Uh, Wesley Gaskins, who's an elementary school uh, age student here in our church. His parents are Brandon and Virginia Gaskins, who have been here since really the very beginning of the church starting. Uh, Wesley has battled cancer over the past couple of years and uh, had, had really great success in terms of the treatments. Well, they just found out that now, which was unrelated to before apparently, he has many lesions on his brain. And it's been taken to Wolfson over in Jacksonville and uh, they're running tests. We don't know all the information yet, but it's pretty serious. Uh, so his grandparents, uh, both sets of grandparents, the Glasses and the Gaskins were here at church uh, this morning at our 830 service. The parents, Brandon and Virginia, are over in Jacksonville right now. I spoke to Brandon right before the 830 service started, and they're just asking for prayer right now. So I'm going to pray for Wesley and pray for them. Obviously, it's a heavy moment uh, for our church right now, and I just ask that you continue to commit to praying that the Lord uh, will heal Wesley and be with all the family. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, lift up Wesley to you right now. Uh, we don't always have explanations from you, but we do have promises and we know that you are with him right now and with his family. So we ask that Wesley can be healed. We plainly ask that of you, that you, the great physician, the one who is sovereign over all things, that you be with the doctors, with the treatments, with everything that's going to happen. Lord, and you allow Wesley to be healed from whatever it is that's happening right now. We also ask you to be with the glasses, with, also with the Gaskins, with Brandon, Virginia, with Sister Savannah, Lord, the whole family. Lord, we just ask that in this very confusing and scary time that they know you are near, they actually can feel your presence, we ask, and that we know that nothing can separate them from your love, the scripture tells us. We ask they experience that right now. And please use our church family, those who know them, to walk with them through this time, but ultimately ask for healing. Lord, we ask that Wesley can be healed, and we ask you, just as a church family, for that to be true. Lord, so we ask you to be with that family. Lord, I ask you, ask, you speak to me this morning to keep the enemy out of this place. We have all the churches in our city as they gather. Let us find our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what's happening in this world, let us stand on the good news uh, that Jesus Christ came to make all things new, uh, to die for sinners. He rose from the grave, giving us the promise of a future resurrection of ourselves. We know that death does not have the final word. So we are thankful for the good news of Jesus. Let us look to him this morning, we ask in his name. Amen. 
So in Acts 26, we just had read to you from our college students, we see Paul once again having to stand before another leader and being accused of causing controversy, of causing dissension, of causing rioting, of proclaiming this truth about this one named Jesus, who he claims is the promised Messiah. And here he now is standing in front of King Agrippa. And one commentator said, here is King Agrippa, who's one of the kings of the Jews, kings lowercase k. And here is Paul standing before him proclaiming the king, capital K, of the Jews. And it's not a coincidence that God has Paul in his sovereignty standing before Agrippa to proclaim the good news of the gospel. It's so important we know that God is sovereign over every ruler on the face of the earth throughout history. He is sovereign over kings, over presidents, over prime ministers, even over dictators. God rules and reigns over all of them. All are subjects under his feet, whether they realize it or not. And here is Paul again, again, standing before another leader, having to give account for his faith in Jesus Christ. He's having to defend himself again. And his defense is not going to be, you're, you're falsely accusing me, or nah-uh, what about this, or this is persecution. Instead, his defense is his own story of coming to a realization that Jesus Christ really, truly, actually is the Messiah. That he is the one who was promised by the prophets the one the law in the Old Testament ultimately pointed to, that God would send one who would redeem his people from their inability to keep the law, from their sins. And now he's standing before this great ruler, proclaiming one that is far greater than even him. So what's happening here is Paul had religion. He gives testimony to that. He tells his story. If anybody was religious, it was Paul. As religious as one could possibly be, I can't state that or exaggerate that enough. Paul was in step and in line of what it meant to observe all the traditions and the morals that was the Jewish religion. He was a Jewish person on steroids, we could say. He was that level. He had religion. He even had righteousness by the standards of the world at that time. But even though he had religion and righteousness, he didn't have redemption. He had religion. He had a sense of righteousness in terms of good deeds. But he didn't have redemption. And religion and even a sense of worldly righteousness without redemption is extremely deceptive. And who is it most deceptive to? Ourselves. It's most deceptful to our own hearts. And here's what he says in verse 4. All the Jews know my way of life from youth. He's talking to the king here. As in they know my story. They know me forever. One of those things where, oh, I knew when you were a little kid, I used to babysit you. I was friends with your grandma. We went to high school together. All the Jews know my way of life from youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own people. Like, I'm one of you. Like in Jerusalem, they know my story. They even know me. They've known me for a long time. If they're willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. That would have been someone today who never missed a Bible reading, never forgot to pray, never missed church on Sunday, was so religious they went to the 8.30 service. but he didn't have redemption. And his story is not one of him getting more religious. 
It's not one of him getting more righteous by the standards of the world. It's not of him finding more morals or even learning more Bible stories. It's a story of him finding redemption in Jesus Christ. The one even in his devout religion he was missing. Even though his entire religion was pointing to Jesus the entire time. That's why he's mentioning the prophets in the text. That's why he's mentioning the law. That's why he's mentioning the biblical story. Because he's telling Agrippa, don't you understand? This is not some new thing I came up with. That the entire Old Testament that so many of our Jewish brothers and sisters believe, it's pointed to Jesus the entire time. He's always been the point of the story. The prophet said that one day a Messiah would come, that God would bring one who could redeem God's people to himself and free them from the sin and God's penalty of sin, which is death, that can spare us from the wrath of God. He would take as the lamb to be slaughtered our sin for us and the punishment justly deserved for our rebellion against God. He's saying this is the one that it pointed to, or the law, the law the scriptures call a tutor. As in it shows us our need, it helps us. If you ever had math tutoring or science tutoring, maybe in college, in elementary school, middle school, maybe you sign your kids up for tutoring, tutors are meant to help. They're helped to point us towards the test. The law is a tutor in terms that it shows us, it helps us see and understand our need for redemption, that we are lawbreakers before God. So how do you overcome that? By getting more religious? By getting more morals? by going deeper into your family tradition? None of those are bad things, but none of those things actually forgive sin. Because for sin to be forgiven, there must be a payment for sin. And either we're gonna make the payment ourselves for our lives, or we trust the one God has provided Jesus to be the one who makes the payment in our place with his own life. When Christians talk about the cross, it's not just a random inspirational symbol. It's our understanding of what it means to be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God. And Paul's saying, that's what I began to understand. That's what God opened my eyes to. He was trying to keep Christianity from spreading. And if anyone knew the story of Messiah coming one day, that he would do all these things, it was Paul. He just rejected it was actually Jesus. And then his eyes were opened and he met the only one who could forgive his sins. In his religious observance and in his devout following of the law he was missing the one the entire religion was pointing to don't let that be you don't be so blinded by your own idea of morality your own idea of righteousness you kind of keep up with the moral version of the Tallahassee Joneses in other words you're a good person don't let that blind you from your need of redemption to be forgiven of your sins. And if you are a Christian in this room, please don't see this as elementary or a message just for unbelievers or new Christians. You have to return to this every single day because there's a tendency in our hearts to still revert back to that old Pharisee religious way. Right? To earn God's favor, work my way to his love rather than receiving it freely in our lives through the death of Jesus Christ. Religion without redemption is deceptive. It's also destructive. Because it'll destroy your soul, even though it appears and looks to be good. And maybe there's a reason why you've been frustrated in your faith. Where you feel maybe you don't feel God's presence, or you're not doing enough. And maybe the reason is you're focusing more on your religion than you are on your redemption. Look to the cross. Look to Christ. 
See, Paul here is convinced of the empty tomb. The resurrection is what gives him confidence time and time again to stand before people like Agrippa and be unashamed of the good news of the gospel. As a pastor, I, I do a lot of funerals. And obviously, there's no such thing as a fun funeral. Uh, but there are funerals that are more joyful than others, even in the grieving. And those are ones where you know the person who passed away was a Christian. Not they're really religious, not they're really moral, but they believe in the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even that mustard seed faith the Lord talks about. The size of our faith is not what matters. It's the size and the magnitude of our Savior that matters and saves us. If we believe that in faith. So I did a funeral several years ago. It was here in this building. And it was a Christian family. And it was the, the person who passed away was a believer. And it's customary for a pastor to sit down with the family before the funeral just to help them out. Just to, they're, they're grieving. They can't think straight. Just to walk them through what a funeral will look like. Ask what they want. Just kind of be there for them. Just to kind of touch base and then prepare. So I was the pastor for the funeral. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to have uh, different people share, like testimonials, which is very common. So they had four or five people. They lined up in chairs right here. And each one would come up and just share a story or share a thought, you know, maybe try to be a little lighthearted, whatever they could do, just to provide some, you know, a little bit of joy to the family during a difficult time. It was roommates, you know, former roommates, coworkers, good friends, cousins, all those sort of things. And they asked me at the end, they said, we want you to be, do you to finish out, this was going to be the closer, Mariana Rivera out of the pen, I was going to be the closer. And they want you to be, want you to be really clear about who Jesus is. We don't want to waste our son's death. Please preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I said, that's all I know how to do. I'm in. So I'm a one-trick guy. So, so, I, that was my, so I, I took it really seriously. This family's trusted me with this most serious day in their family. And so everyone uh, took their turn sharing. They were fantastic. Just gave amazing testimonies. Just, it was just great. I know the family was blessed by it. And they were saying things like, he was the best guy I ever knew. You know, lit up the room. I trust him with anything. I can't imagine life without him, shirt off your, off your back kind of guy, just all those really nice things. Then it was my turn. So I come, and I was nervous, kind of took a deep breath, the room was packed. And I said, first of all, I want to thank everyone who shared this, here this afternoon. I thought it was beautiful what you said. And I want everyone in this room to know that everything they said about him was 100% accurate and true. He was that kind of guy but none of those reasons is why he is in heaven today. He's in heaven today because Jesus Christ died for his sins and rose from the grave, and he believed that in faith and repentance. Religion and morals are wonderful things. They do not save. Only Jesus provides redemption and saves. Please believe that. Please cling to that. That's why we declare the gospel as good news, because you can't save yourself, and oh, do we try over and over again. Flannery O'Connor, the Southern literature writer, wrote often about what she called the Christ-haunted South. And in that she meant here where we live, there's this sort of lingering of an understanding of Jesus, like the reality of Jesus, where you're not an atheist, you're not an agnostic, like you're cool with Jesus as long as he doesn't mess with very much. That lingering's still kind of there, and it, and it kind of presses on you, brings a little guilt sometimes, brings a little bit, uh, maybe I need to go to church, or maybe you get a little more religious a few times a year when you really need to, where all of a sudden for you know, a, a wedding, you want a pastor to do the wedding, even though you're not really around a church or part of Christianity at all. 
or, you know, for a funeral, you want to be at a church, or, you know, like, like all those are good things, but they, but they kind of linger. It's always fascinating to me when my unbelieving friends, and I thank God I have a lot of them, will ask me to do their wedding. And I'm like, I was going to come regardless, I was, but why do you want me to do it? I'm not a justice of the peace, I'm not a notary, like, I'm a pastor. And they're, and they're like, exactly, it's why I want you to do our wedding. I don't say it like that, but I kind of, but I'm like, why do you want me? But no, but I kind of like work it in a little bit because I'm curious about that. Like, why? It doesn't make any sense. But that lingers. There's just something about it that makes people feel a little more spiritual, a little more right with God, a little more religious if they put some religious language and kind of sanctimonious sort of things on top of it. It's the reality of our mission field and where we live. That lingering, as Flannery Connor said, of the Christ-haunted South. And I think you see that here in Acts. Like, what is making these people become so unglued about Paul's message? Like, why does Agrippa care so much? You know how many people have claimed to be the Messiah or claimed to be divine in Bible times? Now we just dismiss them and call them a cult. I mean, back then it was commonplace. But the difference in all of those in Jesus was they died and stayed in the tomb. So they could be written off. Jesus was alive, and his followers were not brainwashed or proselytized. They saw him alive with their own eyes after they saw him killed. So they went from skeptical, like anyone would have been, to convinced that they would give their lives as martyrs. And the people were losing their minds trying to stop it. Why? Because what is Paul calling the text for? Repentance turning from the world and placing your allegiance in Jesus, as in if Jesus really did rise from the grave, it's going to mess with everything. I promise you right now there's people in this room who you bank your standing with God on the reality that you think you're a good person. I don't deny for a minute that you're a good person. But God does not judge us with how we compare to other people. Or how you are in line with what morality looks like in suburban Tallahassee in 2023. God's standard is himself. Himself. So one sin against him violates his law and separates us from him. And we think the way that we're going to overcome that is by being a good person? That works great for life in like the everyday kind of minutia of, of your schedule. That doesn't forgive sins. Because God will not let sin go unpunished. He's like, well, I was going to punish their sin, but you know what? She's really sincere. He volunteers. So it's no big deal. I was thinking about, you know, punishing his sin, but he rings the bell outside of Publix during Christmas one day a year. He goes to all the banquets in town. His business buys a table. Isn't that cute? God's standard is himself, and he won't let sin go unpunished. But our God, thankfully, is a loving and merciful God. And rather than punishing us as our sins deserve, Jesus is punished in our place, the one who never sinned, who always obeyed God's law. And because he rose from the grave, Paul has no shame and no fear in standing up and saying, he is actually the one he claimed to be, and he changed my life. Jesus revealed himself to me, Paul tells him. He opened my eyes. And then he saved me to something. He saved me from something, God's just punishment of sin, and then he also saved me to something, to his family, to his people, to his mission. Verse 17, I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles 
I am sending you to them. Our saving God is also a sending God. He does both those things. He saves and he sends. And what is the, what is the mission and what's God promising to do? To open their eyes. What an amazing prayer to pray for your friends. Maybe for your spouse, for your son or your daughter. For your coworkers, for your neighbor, for your roommate for your sorority sister, for your teammate. God, open their eyes. Open their eyes to see. They're blind to the things of this world. Give them spiritual eyes to see, Lord. Spiritual eyes is one of the greatest needs that we have. Open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light. There's a turn that takes place, a repentance. And I get that when you see darkness, it's, again, Christ-haunted south. We go, okay, like, my friend might not know Jesus, but he's not, like, darkness. Like, he's not, like, goth guy, right? Like, like you're not, he's not, like, darkness. When we think darkness, we think just, like, you know, somebody's just very much, like, into, like, like Wicca or whatever, or like, stuff. or You know, that, that's what we think of with darkness. But the reality is there's two places in the kingdom of God. There's darkness and light. There's not a middle ground. There's not a dimmer so either you're in darkness or you're in light. Again, it's hard for us to think of this really nice guy that we know or even your own family member who's like a great guy. Darkness is not a little extreme. Again, it's extreme if our comparison is other people. That's never God's comparison. But the good news is there's hope. He's saying we're going to open their eyes and move them and turn them from darkness to light. And this sounds strange too. From the power of Satan, it's like, whoa, Satan... Because when we think of Satan, we've been westernized, we think of the Halloween costume. You know, red cape, black cape, pitchfork, horns, or the old Bugs Bunny cartoons, where Bugs is being tempted to do something bad, like not be a good friend or something like that. And all of a sudden the angel appears on his shoulder and says, Bugs, do the right thing. I'm dating myself here. And then the devil appears on his other shoulder and says, do the wrong thing. There's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. You've got to go around God for what you're looking for, not right to him. So we think of Satan rather than the great tempter as sort of a cartoonish kind of figure that only like snake handler pastors talk about, right? And the reality is that Jesus believed the devil was a real being that had a real mission, which was devour. And the reality is either we belong to him or we belong to God. So when you think of Satan, don't think of some random person out at Tom Brown Park throwing cats in a fire or something strange like that. Think of anything that's not of God. Anything that's not of God. That's the devil's business. And what's the great hope that we have? He doesn't leave them there. It's not a hellfire and brimstone message. He says that they may receive forgiveness of sins. But that's the hope. That's the eye-opening. That's the transfer from darkness to light. That they may be forgiven. And not only that, they get to share. As in, they get to be a part of a church among those who are sanctified, which is all Christians, by faith in me. Me meaning Jesus. That he's the one that unites us. He's the one that brings us together. So I'm saved from something, God's punishment of sin. And then I'm saved to something, which is his mission and to his church. He's saying, that's what's going to happen. That's the message. That's the mission. And then Paul, before, after he shares his story, he stands before the king and says, here's my heart. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? 
I know you believe. He's actually kind of setting them up here. He's like, I know you believe. You have a strong knowledge of the Bible. Do you believe the prophets? Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? "Ah, I'm on to you, Paul. Is that what you're trying to do? Paul says, I wish before God that whether easily, as in you just really do easily believe and believe that he is the one because of the resurrection that fulfilled the prophecies of old, do you surrender your life to Jesus or with difficulty, if God brings you kicking and screaming through trials, through tragedy, through massive mistakes and guilt and shame, any way that God is going to bring you, the reality is that in his love he's going to bring you. Not only you. Oh, this is a big message. It's a message for all the world to hear, he's saying. But for all who listen to me today. They might become as I am. What does he mean by that? Not as religious as me, as forgiven as me. Because he trusted in Jesus. Except for these chains. I'm not wishing chains upon anybody. I want them to be able to have religious freedom. And proclaim Jesus without hindrance. So in this long chapter of Acts 26... It can be summarized as Paul saying, Jesus is the point. He is the reason for our religion. Religion's not a bad thing. People say Christianity's not a religion. Yes, it is. It just finds its answer in Jesus Christ. It summarizes in Jesus. It's a religion that's about a cross and an empty tomb and a promise that one day he will come again. And that he saves us not just from something, but to something. Please know the religious inclination in your heart is a Christ-haunting kind of idea that's pointing you to Jesus. He is the answer to our religion. And this actually so much applies to the very mature Christian and long-time Christian in the room. Because again, there's that kind of default mode to go back to this kind of workspace righteousness to think that God's approval of you is going to be based on how well you perform for him in terms of morals and religious duties. When God's approval of you is found and understood in Jesus. So if your guilt is keeping you from Christ, that's actually religion. If your past mistakes are keeping you from Christ, that's religion without redemption. Because in your mind, and it's not even probably your fault because you've been wired to think this way, that you believe that God is only going to accept you if you do these things. And here's reality. We all try to do those things and failed miserably. In spite of that, God has been the one who has acted, and he made the demands on our life, which is holiness, perfect holiness, and also met those demands in Jesus being the one who came to save sinners who was perfectly holy. So to me, a deep church and a theologically robust church that takes the Bible seriously, it's going to almost sound like they talk about the same thing every single week. And I'm fine with being guilty of that because we have one hope and one answer. Now, there's implications to this about what it means in terms of different things of our lives, but if Jesus really did rise from the grave, it impacts our marriages, it impacts our parenting, our friendships, our jobs, our wallet, our calendar, our ballots in the voting booth. It impacts all of it, but all under the banner that Jesus really actually is the one that he claimed to be. So as a church, we have to be diligent 
about ensuring that we continue with my FCA leader, Karen Knox, to tell me to keep the main thing the main thing. That Jesus really is the focus. That he really is the point. And he really is the one that all the scriptures point to. And that religion without him is deficient. It's deceptive. And ultimately it's destructive. But religion with redemption, oh, you know what? It's divine. It's from God. It's the real stuff. And it should be the focus of all of our faiths. If our object to our faith is not Jesus, maybe we have a faith that God doesn't recognize. Let us see people who answer it all in the name, person, and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful that we have a way to be redeemed and it comes through Jesus. So Lord, I ask that our religion will fuel our understanding of redemption rather than blocking us from seeing it. Forgive us when we trust in ourselves that we are righteous. Forgive us when we just get forgetful about what your redemption of us accomplished. So the person that's been a Christian for a long time in this room and knows all the answers, Lord, help them to return to Jesus as the Redeemer over and over again. Humble us to see that as the deep things of you that we need every single day. And for the person in this room, and I'm sure there are many, who have religion, have morals, have tradition, but don't have redemption, because they've never actually placed their hope in Christ. Lord, open their eyes to see, as Acts 26 says. Take them from darkness to light. Turn them in repentance from the world to you by your grace. Lord, I ask that conversations can happen in our care room after the service. People can be led to faith and understanding of who you are and what you've done for them. Lord, we lift up those in our church who are hurting today, who have suffered loss, who are confused. Lord, I ask that they will receive the greatest gift ever, which is your presence, you with them, and they will know that nothing can separate them from your love. We're thankful that it's why we were sinner, while we were sinners that Christ died for us, that we don't earn your love, you gave it to us. We can love you because you first loved us. We thank you for the indescribable gift of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Let us be a people who are so convinced of the empty tomb that we are unashamed of the gospel in every place where you take us. If it's before a king like Paul or at work tomorrow morning, let us be unashamed of who you are and what you've done. We're thankful, and we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.